Father, we thank you for the great privilege of gathering as your children, as those who have been called into one, even the body of Christ. Now, will you help us to hear the very word of Christ? Even as we think about the way that you have worked all things to glorify yourself and for the good of those who you love, even the very evil intentions of powerful people. Father, help us to respond with trust and love and joy that you are our powerful God. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Every story has a climax. This is true across all stories, across all cultures, but uh, certainly true in our modern movies today. You can think of one really popular movie, Avengers Infinity War. It grossed over $2 billion. That's pretty safe to say a good number of you have seen it. If you have not seen it, I'm sorry about this spoil part of it for you. The climactic moment of the movie involves the snapping of fingers. From that point forward, the entire universe is changed. Nothing can be the same after the evil Thanos' fingers are snapped. When you're reading any sort of story or listening to a story, you want to be listening or reading for that moment after which nothing in the story is the same from there forward, the pivot point in the story. Now, John's gospel is like any good piece of literature or any good movie. It has story arcs within it and even one large story arc. And this morning, we come to the climax of the first chunk of John's gospel. Certainly the climax of the storyline of Jesus and the religious leaders in opposition to him. We come to the point from which their opposition to Jesus and their hatred of him turns into murderous intention and even rage. From this point forward in John's gospel, Jesus will be moved directly to the cross. And we've been studying John's gospel, and that meant last week we saw Jesus raise the dead man Lazarus. That was one of the major signs that Jesus does to show the people who he is so they might hear the message behind his miracle, that he is the Son of God here to offer eternal life. And yet, as we've seen happen again and again, the people don't respond as we expect, and the most religious are the most opposed to Jesus. This morning, we're going to see that opposition calcify. We're going to see that in two gatherings. The first, a gathering of powerful people that will act out of the evil in their hearts. That's what we're going to see in verses 45 through 50. But at the same time, there's something else, even more significant happening. Another gathering. The gathering of our powerful God. Gathering his people for their good. We'll see that in verses 51 through 57. And in all of this, we will see that even the evil intention within the hearts of the powerful people in this world cannot thwart the goodness of our God towards his people. We'll see that in these two scenes. Let's begin in verses 45 through 50. 50 the gathering of powerful people. Now, Jesus having done this miracle of raising Lazarus was not just any ordinary miracle. This was uh, the miracle of miracles. He had raised other people before. 
But he intentionally waited until the fourth day to raise Lazarus to, to the point where his body was beginning to stink from decomposition. This was a miracle that nobody could deny. And Lazarus turned into Jesus' most effective evangelist. Look what says happens in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. That's the response you would expect after someone doing this sort of a miracle, belief. And yet that's not the only response. Look in verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They go and they tattle on Jesus. And this becomes the occasion for some powerful people to go behind closed doors and to make a very big decision. Look at verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. A gathering is called to deal with the pressing problem of this man named Jesus. Now, gatherings of powerful people are not all bad. Uh, Very often they're necessary, even the right response to some sort of a threat. Uh, When the iPhone first came out, uh, Steve Jobs stood up on stage wearing his black turtleneck and held up the first smartphone as we know it today. It set off a panic amongst the executives at Google because it turned out that the Google, uh, Google was in the process of releasing a smartphone of their own, only it didn't have a touch screen. It was uh, something like a, a BlackBerry from back in the day with one of those keyboards and had a little mouse wheel. Uh, that seemed perfectly fine 10 minutes before Steve Jobs stood, stood up on the stage and held up the iPhone. But at that moment, they were put into a crisis mode, and their executive teams called a board meeting, and they decided, we've got to change direction. And all the Android phones that maybe you know and love, or maybe not so much love, all those Android phones were birthed out of that meeting. Powerful gatherings of people to respond to crisis are not intrinsically evil. And yet, very often, power gathered reveals evil in the human heart the way nothing else can. As we look at this meeting, we're going to see two aspects of the pattern of evil in the human heart that only power can reveal. Now, the gathering itself is a gathering of what's called the Sanhedrin. It likely was made up of 70 very powerful religious people Uh, priests, scribes. They they would come from different factions within Judaism in that day. They were overseen by a singular figure, the high priest. His name was Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the consummate politician of his day. Uh, The high priest was supposed to be a lifetime appointment, but the Romans had taken to replacing high priests at a regular clip to show they really had the power over the Jewish people. Well, Caiaphas, Caiaphas knew the game and he knew how to play it. He had managed to stay high priest for 18 years. That means he understands how to operate politically, and it means he is more than a little bit ruthless. This gathering of the Sanhedrin would have with it a little bit like the authority of the Supreme Court and Congress rolled into one. They were both an executive and a judicial body. But over top of them was another layer of government. That was the Romans themselves. 
And you have to understand that the Romans were in the business of keeping rebellions from happening. They had a vast empire at this point, and they would give pieces of autonomy to uh, these little states that they owned. But whenever they got a whiff that maybe someone was going to try and rebel against their government or break free, the Romans would come down with such fury that no one else would try and make that mistake. That meant that these slightly independent nations like Israel at the moment, they lived in constant fear that the Romans might think a rebellion was about to happen. So we see the, the crisis show up. What, what, what's the crisis? It's two sections to it. The, the first is that they have people that are believing Jesus. They, the people that are, has saw the sign and it started to follow after him, that, that's a problem for them. They're not in control over that group. But even more so, the real fear comes out in 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come take away both our place and our nation. The real fear is that we're going to lose our nation and we're going to lose our power. You see, the first part of the pattern of evil in the human heart, the power reveals, is the way fear drives so many decisions. The fear of losing power becomes the occasion for evil in so many cases throughout human history. This is a powerful group of people. They feel the fact that they are losing control over this situation and they are worried that they are going to be extinguished. They're going to be pushed out of the seats of power that they currently occupy. Well, that power and that fear of losing power gives way to the second aspect of the pattern of evil in the hearts that power reveals pragmatism. You see that in 49 and 50. This is where Caiaphas, that consummate politician, stands up and gives his take on the situation. But Caiaphas, who is high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. It's a bit like saying, you guys are a bunch of nincompoops. You know nothing. Let me tell you how it really is. Verse 50, nor do you understand it's better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. What's Caiaphas saying? One commentator put it this way. This is an example of naked politics in action. Caiaphas is saying, don't you understand it's better that we kill one innocent man if that means we keep this bad thing from happening to the nation? If it keeps the Romans from thinking a rebellion starting, it's worth it. If even an innocent man has to die. Well, think of all the suffering the Romans would inflict upon the people. Think about what would happen to us. Surely the life of one man is nothing in comparison. Do you, do you see the pragmatic sort of logic? Now, pragmatism is really the, the system of thought that says whatever works is right. Under pragmatic thought... If it works to keep you in power, to keep the Romans off your back, then it is justified. You know, pragmatic solutions are still in vogue today. There was a, about a decade ago a politician that was caught very openly lying about another politician in the midst of an election. 
The lies were one of the reasons that that other politician lost the election. And so when the lying politician was called out on it by a reporter, he responded and said, hey, it worked, didn't it? Pragmatics, pragmatism leads to some incredibly evil actions and justified ways of thinking. It says, if it keeps me in power, if it keeps me safe, well, the collateral damage, well, it all must be worth it. You see this happen within people with lots of power very often. You, maybe you've heard the maxim from Lord Acton. Uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. There's a reason why that saying has stuck around as long as it has. You can see it play out over and over again. Dictators claim that they are doing something for the people when in fact they're just protecting their own skin, making sure that they have all the riches and goodness even at the expense of their own people. From Hitler to Stalin to Pol Pot, history is checkered with all sorts of examples, people showing that they are willing to do anything if it means their own interests are furthered. Now realize, though, that this doesn't just play out, play out at a governmental level. This is the pattern of the human heart. It just is that power is the occasion for revealing the darkness of the human heart. This same heart is present in each and every one of us. Uh, I mean, think about how this might play out in a family. Have you ever noticed how someone marrying into a family can actually turn into a bit of a power struggle? Sometimes they're not welcomed with open arms. Sometimes it feels as if the, so, certain members of the family are actually playing defense against them actually becoming ingrained into the cycle of holidays and the way the family operates. Why does that happen? Well, people feel threatened. And so they justify even passive-aggressive behavior. If it, that means keeping the family intact. Or how might this happen as a businessman? Maybe if you're owning a business, you feel the pressure and the threat of, a co of competition or of finances being tight. Do you ever feel the temptation to cut corners? Maybe even to treat your employees in a way that you know isn't right, but hey, for the good of the business, staying open. Well, I've got to make a tough choice. You know, the prag pragmatism and this sort of operating out of fear, it's not that far from any of us. I, I think even as parents, many times we operate at this level. You feel like you're not getting what you want from your kids. Suddenly the whole day is defined by the paddle or bribing your kids to just get them to behave for a short period of time just so that you feel like you're succeeding as a parent. See, positions of authority lend themselves to revealing this heart within us, but it's within each and every one of us. Now, that does mean as Christians, we above all should be those that are quick to acknowledge that power is something that should be taken very, very seriously. That anyone that has a sort of power should have some sort of accountability around them. You know, this is one of the reasons as a church why we are committed to what we call congregationalism. Congregationalism is the belief that the final authority, final accountability rests in the members of a church. We've just voted in a bunch of members and one of the responsibilities that you who have just been voted in have is to make sure 
that the leadership of your local church does not allow this pattern of evil within the human heart to run amok within our congregation. God forbid it ever happens, but I would hope that our congregation would even vote to remove a pastor or an elder if it was obvious that they were no longer operating from the principles of the Bible. It's one of the reasons it's so important for you as a church member to learn how to think biblically so that we are not operating on pragmatism, of just what works. Instead, we're asking, what does the Bible in fact say about how we should operate as a church? Now, it's certainly true for government. Uh, I think that as Christians should be the most, in, uh, the most ardent supporters of governmental accountability, just because we know the human heart. We know that behind every person in authority is this potential to have evil, use the, the power that they've been given to inflict incredible damage. You know, the great irony in all of this is this group of powerful people that decide they're going to kill Jesus is all their pragmatism, it doesn't end up working. I mean, at one level, it does work. They do kill Jesus. They get rid of their Jesus problem. But at the other level, it doesn't save them. In AD 70, the Romans come anyway. The Romans end up killing hundreds and thousands of people. They tear down their temple. They burn all the records. So we don't even know who are the, of the family of these priests anymore. All their pragmatism didn't stave off the thing they feared the most. Which just goes to show that the calculations we do, even to keep ourselves in supposed safety, those calculations, if they don't take into account that there is a heavenly auditor, those calculations are the height of folly. We see here a gathering of powerful people deciding that they are going to do away with their Jesus problem. When it turns out all they're doing is showing that they are evil people using their power in a futile effort to keep themselves secure. But the irony in this passage actually goes a step deeper. Because it's not just that their pragmatism doesn't work. It's a, there's actually something much bigger happening in this gathering. A second gathering that matters far more than all the puny plans of these evil people. The gathering of our powerful God. That's what we see in verses 51 through 57. Every once in a while, an author throws subtlety out of the window and decides to just beat you over the head with what they are doing, literarily. John does that for us right here. He tells us that Caiaphas, even as he is making this statement of raw politics, He's actually prophesying in a way he didn't understand. In verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord. In other words, Caiaphas didn't intend to do this, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, when people prophesy in the Old Testament, the vast majority of the time, they know what they are doing. A prophet comes, they are given a word from God, they stand up, they say, thus saith the Lord, they speak God's words. 
Either they predict something that's going to happen in the future or they say what God thinks about a particular situation, but they are speaking consciously the very words of God. Every once in a while, though, God uses the words of someone in a way that they don't know he was doing. Unconsciously, God uses them as a prophet. You can think of the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. They're going up the mountain. Abraham's going to sacrifice Isaac. And Isaac asks a legitimate question. He says, Father, where is the lamb? Now in that moment, he is not thinking of the Lamb of God that would come hundreds and hundreds of years later to take away the sin of the world. And yet, once you've read your whole Bible, you can't help but see that God was preparing us. He was even getting our minds and hearts ready for what Jesus would come to do. Sometimes people speak better than they know. God's able to do that because God is sovereign over his creation. That is, he is the king over his creation with such power that even the evil words of a politicking high priest can be used to bring about the very thing that God has intended from the beginning. Caiaphas is speaking his own words, and at the same time, he is speaking God's words without knowing it. God is saying two things through Caiaphas. First, he's saying that Jesus will die for the nation as a substitute. Jesus will die for the nation as a substitute. Caiaphas says, it's better that one man die for the nation than the whole nation perish. He means it's better to kill an innocent man, to murder him, so that we get the political outcome that we want. God means it's better that I send my son, the very lamb of God, to die in the place of sinners rather than the whole world perish under the weight of their own sin. This is undoubtedly picking up on the sacrificial language from the Old Testament. You can think of the, the Day of Atonement when the, the whole nation would benefit from the sacrifice for sin that was made yearly. Jesus as the sacrificial lamb that God sent. He is the sacrifice for God's people. Jesus dies in our place. This is one of the verses in the Bible that very clearly teaches what we call substitutionary atonement. That the good news of the gospel is that Jesus took our place on the cross. That his death wasn't just an act of love or it wasn't just random chance. It was him actually bearing the wrath of God so that people could be forgiven of their sins. Friends, this is right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's why every, Lord's, every time we take the Lord's table, we're reminded of Jesus' body that was broken and his blood that was shed. It's why we'll end this service singing about how the blood of Jesus covers us because central to being a Christian is this idea that Jesus substituted his life for yours. Caiaphas may not know it, but God is speaking. And he says, the nation will not perish because my son will die for it. Second part of the prophecy is that Jesus will gather God's children 
that are scattered abroad. Jesus will gather God's children that are scattered abroad. Now at this point, you might be forgiven for believing that God's intention was to save a ethnic people, a single nation, that God was a tribal God, that the Messiah would be Jewish and he would save a Jewish people and everyone else would watch. Now, if you were reading your Old Testament carefully, you would know that wasn't exactly true. There were hints along the way that there was a a much broader thing that God was doing in the world, that all the nations would benefit from his sent king when the day came. But by and large, the emphasis up until now has been on a particular nation with borders. And yet after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we'll see that God's plan from the beginning has always been for people from all over the world, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to be part of his family. The way that John describes it is the children of God that are scattered abroad. That means that God had children, even at this moment, that he knew that he was going to bring into his family by what Jesus would do on the cross. Now, friends, if you're a Christian this morning, it is because of this. Very few of us are Jewish ethnically, have heritage that we would have been part of ancient Israel. If you go back far enough in the family tree, almost all of us are Christians because God has done this work of gathering us into his family. As Ephesians 1 would say that he's gathered Jews and Gentiles, he's breaking down the wall of hostility, making them into one. This prophecy here is of how God would do this work to gather together the multiple nations of believers in what we call the church. Now, notice, friend, that Fundamental to being a Christian is to be a gathered person, someone that is gathered together into this one body. You know, it's very important for you to personally make a decision for Jesus and to receive forgiveness for sins. And yet, this prophecy, like so many other parts of Scripture, the, the expectation is that when, if you are truly one of God's children, that means you are one of the gathered people of God, and that means you gather regularly with Christians for worship. Now, if you're here this morning and maybe you're visiting our church or maybe you've been attending for a long time, uh, I think this is a, a valid implication of this is you should really consider why am I not a member of a local church? Local churches are put in particular localities so that believers can be connected to each other to be the local expression of this one body that God has created through the work of Jesus on the cross. It's a foreign idea to the Bible of a Christian that lives as a free agent off on their own, that has no connection or accountability to other believers. Friends, I think it's a good thing that we welcomed in members this morning. And, And friend, if you are not yourself participating in a local church that way, I invite you to to search the scriptures and ask yourself, is that really the design God has for his church? Well, I I think there's also some applications that we need to make here as parents. You know, parents, when you are talking with your kids about what it means to be a Christian, if they ever ask you, why is it we go to church? Kids, if you're here, maybe you're asking, why do I have to come to church on Sunday? I want you to hear, it's because being connected to other Christians is actually 
what it means to be a Christian. Like the expectation is that if you are a Christian, that means you are connected to other Christians. And the local church is the place where God designed for that to happen. Well, there's a lot more that we could say related to that, but I think we need, need to turn our, intention, uh, our attention toward what we do with this difficulty when we talk about a God powerful enough to speak through someone like this, even guiding the events of an evil, powerful group of people to bring Jesus to the cross. How do you reconcile that with ideas like human responsibility, or you might call it free will? I mean, doesn't this make God into kind of like a puppet master that's off in the back, playing us along the way? Well, friends, I think this is one of the places in the Bible that very clearly shows us that God is both sovereign and powerful and in control, and we are simultaneously responsible for our choices. There's a, a, a fancy name people put on this called compatibilism, that your choices as a, a creature and God's sovereign power, they are not in opposition to each other. They are compatible with each other. I, I think an easier way to say is I want to believe everything the Bible says, and that means I need to believe both that it's important that I make the choices that I do, and it's important that I believe that God is powerful, even so powerful that he accomplishes everything that he wants in this world. Let, let me just show you how this plays out if we fast forward a little bit and we see the story from the other side of the cross. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts 4. Acts 4. So Caiaphas has been scheming. The Sanhedrin are going to make a board decision to kill Jesus. We're told this was a prophecy, that this would be all what God intended to have happen from the beginning. Now, after it's all occurred, look how the church prays, looking back at these events. In Acts 4, starting in verse 25. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So far, so good. A bunch of powerful people all conspiring together to bring the cross of Jesus to pass. Look at verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. One action, two intentions. One action. Jesus is murdered at the hands of powerful people so they can maintain their power. Two intentions. Their intention and God's intention. It's not the only place this happens. Flip to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. This one has nothing to do with the cross directly, and yet the same thing is at work, one action with two intentions. Genesis 50 verse 20. This is after Joseph. He's been sold into slavery by his brothers, left for dead. 
By God's grace, he rises to prominence out of prison. He ends up as the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. They have this meeting together where he reveals who he is. He forgives them. And then he tells them about this, about how he's reflecting on all that's happened. It says in verse 50, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. One intention, one action, two intentions, one evil act of brothers trying to get rid of a, a brother that they don't like, that they're jealous of, and yet God is doing something at the very same moment through even the hearts of these evil people. You see, brothers and sisters, this should be a great source of comfort to us. We don't need to understand all the philosophical ins and outs of how it is these two pieces fit together. We can just trust no matter what the situation, no matter how bad the evil, that somehow, some way, God is using this for the good of his children, and yes, even to glorify himself. The cross shows us that the evil of man becomes the occasion for the goodness of God to be showered down on people undeserving of God's grace. We need not be afraid of thinking thoughts of a God who is powerful and big, even sovereign. We should find great comfort in that fact. Now, as the story progresses, the council makes their decision in verse 53. They, they make plans to put him to death. And from this point forward, the story will never be the same. We're, we're coming to the end of the first big unit where Jesus is going around doing miracles, and now we're on the highway that's going to lead us to the cross. We see here Jesus understands this is all part of God's plan. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town named Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Jesus is not afraid, running away. He is biding his time until the appointed time when it'll be his time to go to the cross and die for God's children. We see there in 55 through 57 that from here forward, the sharks are circling. They're just waiting for their opportunity to get Jesus. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he'll not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should, they should let them know so they might arrest him. From here forward, this plot to kill Jesus is going to unfurl before us until the moment where they seem to accomplish their mission. And it turns out they're only accomplishing his mission, the salvation of sinners like you and me. Brothers and sisters, when evil seems so powerful, when you are just oh so discouraged with another news headline, it seems like it's senseless and cruel, would you remember that your powerful God is at work? Maybe in a way that you won't know until heaven. But somehow or the other, he is working to gather his children and to glorify himself. You know, as a church, we had the joy of giving toward an organization called Heart for Lebanon 
with our Christmas offering. Last September, I got to go over to Lebanon in the Bekaa Valley and see the uh, structure that was being built to, to do ministry to Syrian refugees. Now, if you think about the the circumstances that led to that ministry even being there, it's undoubtedly a horrible thing. The Syrian civil war has been bloody and cruel. It's been senseless. And yet as people have fled, bombed out cities like Aleppo, fled with just the shirts on their backs, as they've crossed the mountain range and landed in refugee camps with even more suffering to come, Do you know what we've seen God do? We've seen hundreds of Muslims that had never heard the gospel become brothers and sisters in Christ. They were in a place where missionaries couldn't reach. And suddenly they're in a place where there are Christian workers spending all day and night loving on them and sharing the love of Jesus. Now, as a church, we got to help them build this facility, which is already being used. There's already a church gathering. It's about the size of our sanctuary. We're here this morning. They have about 250 people that were all Muslims a short time ago and now are Christians. And friends, that does not happen unless they are pushed out of their homes and into a refugee camp. Now, I don't know what it is that you find discouraging in the news over the last few weeks, but realize this is how Christians think of the world. We know there are powerful people with evil plots. We take seriously the fact that that evil needs to be checked as we can, and yet we serve a powerful God, one who is gathering his children scattered all over the world. Let's pray.